We let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another as the day draws near and to look to you for guidance and help and grace and mercy. And Lord, as we study the scriptures, we pray that our hearts and minds would be opened through faith to the glorious truths that you revealed, that we might be willing not only to believe them, but to walk in them as you enable us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we last week discussed the citation of Psalm 8 that we find in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. So, having discussed that, what is man, and noticing that God has a very high uh, purpose for man, to be an image bearer of himself and the ultimate destiny of those who know Jesus. We now, uh, we have a transition here. Let's read verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, talking about man in general, and particularly redeemed man. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that was not subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, that brings us to verse 9, our verse where we're going to begin. But we do see Him. See the contrast? We do see Jesus. We do see Him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. That He might taste death for everyone. Well, I have a lot of notes on these verses here. There's a lot of uh, theology packed into this little verse. But we see, first of all, the humiliation of Christ in the sense that the creator of the universe, which he's revealed to be in Hebrews chapter 1, who is crowned with splendor, glory, and honor, lower humbled himself, came to earth, And it says, for a little while, lower than the angels. So here we have uh, Jesus in his humanity. And we should keep in mind as we're reading this chapter of Hebrews, it's talking about the humanity of Christ. Not to detract at all from his deity, but there's the two natures, the human and divine nature of Christ. Here talking about the human one. So in that sense, as man, lower than the angels. And that phrase is synonymous with the phrase in Hebrews 2.7. We're not just synonymous, it's the same phrase. For a little while lower than the angels. Here again it's repeated, for a little while lower than the angels. So, man is for a little while lower than the angels. And Jesus in his humanity was for a little while lower than the angels. That is, as a man. Um, here, he's called Jesus, the first time this term name is used in Hebrews, because it's emphasizing his humanity. Because of the suffering of death, so his humiliation leads to his exaltation, crowned with glory and honor. Um, this phrase is also used in the Septuagint of Exodus 28 and there the same in the, in the Greek of the Old Testament it's used of Aaron's 
um, priests and parents, this glory and honor. In fact, can somebody look up Exodus 28 too? How about you, Lonnie? Could you do that for me? So there's a little hint here in the Greek that we're going to be talking about priesthood. Jesus as the priest. That phrase was an allusion to the Greek Old Testament, Exodus 28. Uh, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Yeah, glory glory and honor and glory and beauty are the same same phrase in the Greek. Okay? And so the idea is that Jesus crowned with glory and honor in a sense is the high priest in the heavenlies. And he remains forever as a high priest. And so we we have a little literary hint here already in chapter 2 of this theme of Christ's priesthood. Right? So it's because of his suffering and now his crown of glory and honor. It says that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now we have a purpose clause here that why Jesus was abased to the human condition. The reason being that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. Now here, we have a phrase that's certainly going to uh, remind us of a theological dispute about the extent of the atonement. (laughs) Do you like disputes? Some people do, some people don't. (laughs) I have... um, I printed out, I just have one of these, but I can make copies if anybody wants to read some theological material on this. It says, For whom did Jesus taste death? By Dr. John Piper, uh, and it's an exposition of Hebrews 2.9. And he takes the opinion that it's for believers, based on the context. That's his claim. Does anybody want to read that? John Piper. Yeah, past local pastor here. He's also a scholar. For whom did Jesus case death? Well, I was going to quote William Lane, so bear with me. I have so many commentaries I'm using on Hebrews. <laughs> it takes me a long time to get through one verse when you read five commentaries on it. <laughs> a lot of work, but I like to learn. Here's what William Lane, who has really written several outstanding commentaries. His commentary on the Gospel of Mark is one of the best I've ever read on any book. But um, he says, here's what he says about this. He says, in Jesus we see exhibited humanity's true vocation. In an extraordinary way, he fulfills God's design for all creation displays what had always been intended for all humankind, according to Psalm 8. He is the one in whom primal glory and sovereignty are restored. His experience of humiliation and exaltation guarantees that the absolute subjection of everything envisioned in Psalm 8-7 and promised in Psalm 110-1 will be yet achieved. (coughs) So, um, he says that this is the main point of this is that Jesus is doing something that's reversing the, what happened in the abasement of man because of the fall. Yes. Does that mean that before man fell, he was in that condition? 
He well before man. Um, I think that he never achieved his destiny. Yeah, in, in some in some ways, he was in a better condition that before than after the fall, obviously. And the beginning of God's plan was that all the non-human creation would be subjected to man. Right? He gave him dominion over the earth, not over other sinners, because there were no sinners. <laughs> dominion theology says that God. That that proves that we're supposed to subjugate all the people and make them Christian by political force. But it's not true. It says in Psalm 8 that he made them a little lower than the Elohim. Yeah. Translated angels in the New Testament. Right. Does that mean that when Adam was pre-fall, did he have dominion over the Elohim, or was he still under the Elohim? I I don't know, but I don't think he had dominion over any angels, as far as we read in Genesis. I don't know. Maybe that was his ultimate destiny. That's a good question. Anybody, what do you think, Ryan? Just, uh, um, forgive me if I'm getting ahead of you here, but uh, cross-reference, but I think in Colossians chapter 1. Yeah, that's a good cross-reference. Um, speaking of this, 19 and 20, for it was the Father's good pleasure to all the fullness of the world, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having been peace to believe 
that not everybody's saved, then you believe in limited atonement. Because if it was unlimited atonement, everybody would be saved. So the only debate is over what limits it. God's eternal purposes are man's choices. And that just gets your back up to the previous debate about whether it's such a thing as the elect or not. And so it doesn't really further the issue a lot to get into a whole lot of wrangling about it. But on the other hand, it's out there, it's an issue, and I'm always willing to discuss anything. So anybody care to debate limited atonement? Right? unless God does a work of grace. That's my opinion. Let me take your illustration and if you're sitting on a platform and the train comes in and you watch the people get off the train, there's only a limited number get off that train. For whatever reason, there's only a limited number that get off the train. Right? You know, yeah. There's a limited number someplace. You know, there's a limited number of people. <laughs> well, um, okay, anybody else? Pete, what do you want to say? It's related to it. The, it, it all, the debate is, it goes back to the eternal decrees of God. All right, and so if God decreed from all eternity to save some, then then that's how you would explain this, because God's eternal purposes is what limited the effectualness of the atonement. If you believe that God decreed to save everybody, but his decrees were thwarted by man, then man decides. Right? We have another passage in Hebrews that says, by one sacrifice, or one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being set apart. So there is a very, very powerful statement of the effectual nature of the atonement. Yeah. So, we have to take the whole counsel of God and look at it, especially since that's in Hebrews here, and take the overall uh, picture of Hebrews, read the whole book in context, look at the statements about redemption, look at all the statements about the time. The, the whole conclusion, um, as you go on here, find things about Jesus' high priestly ministry and how that's related to the cross. And that gives us real interesting things about intercession and atonement, and it's, it's really hard to get into this whole but taking for everyone and, and he's only that gets really hard as you get off going on the whole. I think you'll address those things when you get into it. So I say is what my suggestion is. Okay, if you're having issues about the way these things, let's just wait till we get further on and keep this and very way to have to do Well, can we all agree that only believers are actually saved? 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it to you on that one. Good. comes along so cold and grass. The nature of God, he's long-suffering. Could we ever understand it towards those that perish? Could we ever comprehend that in its minutest form? It, you know, the argument seems so cold, like God, you know, uh, is cold. There's no way in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that ever shows God is cold that way. His love is beyond comprehension. So if he's long-suffering towards the lost, I accept it. The rest I don't quite understand how he's going to do it. And we're saved, those that are saved like he's he said. And he's telling everybody, get on the train, get on the because train. it's going to heaven, and where you're going is to hell. Get on the train, here's a ticket. That's, that's absolutely right. God is telling everybody that. If they don't do it, they have nobody to blame but themselves. Can we agree? Alright. Good, we found unity. <laughs> um, one more. Um, oh, I wanted to... Oh, that's verse 10. I was looking down one here. I also have often said about this that certainly the atonement of Christ is sufficient for any and all sinners who would come to the cross. There's never going to be anybody who comes and says, Dear Lord, I see I'm a wretched sinner and I must repent and I need the gospel and uh, forgive my sins and I turn away from myself and I turn to you and God says, Sorry, the atonement ran out yesterday. <laughs> That's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's why, in some ways, this limited idea is not very good terminology. You know, yeah, right, because it implies that God is going to run out of atonement, which he won't. Okay. I think that's the basis for the whole controversy here is, is the blood of Christ sufficient for all men, even those that won't come to the cross? If they would come, it would be sufficient for them. If they don't, if, if nothing happens for them, the blood doesn't wash away their sins. Kills, they don't come to the cross. Oh, I, I understand that. Yeah. It, it, it would, they say, here's, here's the way it's often said in theology books. Sufficient for all, efficient for believers. Okay. Is that right? Okay. Right. Efficient means Actually, efficient means working, yes. Yeah. Romans 5, 8, and then skip down to 18. And then Leif, 
Romans 8.32, and Karen, Philippians 2.7-9. The Philippians 2 one is also a very important cross-reference to this passage. And we need to have a very deep appreciation for the love of God and the mercy of God that Jesus, who is eternal God in majestic splendor, would willing to be willing to come here as a man and be humiliated by sinners. It's unbelievable mercy and grace. That's something to think about. Tonight. Okay, this is still 2 9. Psalm 21, 3 through 6. Here's my answer. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest the crown of pure gold on his head. Thou settest the crown of pure gold on his head. He hath life of thee, and thou gave it to him, even length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. For thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceedingly glad with thy countenance. Ironic. Ironic. Yeah. 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 You count as many pounds as saying that they got. You count as many pounds. When you can sing this song with God. Okay. <laughs> Acts 2.32, Dean. Acts 2.32. Uh, this Jesus that God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. All right. Witnesses of the raising up of Jesus. Um, then Romans 5, 8 and 18. God
For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Amen. So humiliation and voluntary humiliation and then exaltation of our Lord. What was that, Philippians? Philippians 2, 7-9. Key passage about that. Okay, now on to verse 10 in Hebrews 2. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. I've got even more notes on this verse. <laughs> this has got a lot of stuff in there. And on the surface, let me tell you what the key problem is. When I, I remember when I first read this as a Bible college student in 1972. I was reading this, and I thought, how can Jesus be, be perfected? Because he's perfect from all eternity. How can he perfect perfection? Well, that's a question I guess we're going to have to try to answer here. And... Um, uh, I, we will find that I have some citations here that will help us with that. And I found answers even back in Bible college by looking at the context and looking at the Greek word teleos. But first of all, let's go back to an ironic statement. It was fitting. Um, it was fitting that Jesus would be perfected through sufferings. And... Remember that the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers who are being tempted to leave the faith uh, and to go back. And they're being warned against apostasy. Now, to first century Jews, the idea of a suffering Messiah did not seem at all fitting. It seemed offensive. And to say that it's fitting for Messiah to suffer would be an utter irony. Okay, And so, we're countering the idea that um, this is not fitting, that, that it isn't right that Messiah would be so humiliated. Because Messiah is supposed to come and demonstrate that he's really God's prophet and God's king. And Messiah is supposed to come and conquer the enemies of God. And Messiah is supposed to come and save Israel. And Messiah is supposed to come and reign on the throne in glory and splendor. And yet, you Christians are saying that Messiah came and what did he do? He, was, he died. He was rejected by the religious leaders who were supposed to know who Messiah is. And he was suffered not only death, he suffered a most humiliating death of crucifixion, which was utterly offensive to the Jews and the Romans did crucifixion to humiliate them. And they had done it many times. And as I told you last week, in, uh, this idea of the Romans had crucified 2,000 Jewish men and hung them on crosses around the roads of Galilee and made people watch them die as they went here and there. And so the idea that, that their Messiah would be treated like that is utterly offensive. But the Bible says very clearly that it's fitting or becoming. It's becoming to God to do this. Well, in what sense is it fitting or becoming that God would send his son to die like this? I'm looking for a physical Messiah or a political Messiah that will conquer my enemies so that I can express my selfishness better and indulge in my selfishness better by dominating and making more money. You know, not being dominated. 
physical side, God comes and says, no, the problem is your selfishness itself. We're going to come and eliminate the domination of your selfishness so that you can live in a physically dominated world and not be bothered because you're not selfish anymore. And so you're dealing with sin. And I think that, you know, the key phrase there is it's fitting for him. In bringing many sons to glory, there's no bringing sons to glory without the moment. Right. Amen. That the splendor and glory, and in this theme also is a little foretaste of something that we're going to see later, later in Hebrews, but that, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the pain later in Hebrews. And so the, the, the glory is, is the, to redeem man, Psalm 8, what is man, and to have representatives from all of the tribes and nations of the earth being brought to glory where they can spend eternity with him, reflecting his image, praising the glory of his grace, and displaying God's marvelous character uh, before even the angels. And so it's fitting in that sense because he's bringing sons of glory. You know, it's just, it gets back to the, you know, the Jews, crosses and offense to bring his but to those who are being saved as the power of God, you know, it, it, it is what was the most horrible act on the uh, plane of human history, but it is important to look at that and see the return of salvation. And his scars still remain in the soul of it. And I think those scars are glorious because they tell us of his love and his mercy and his kindness and his kingship. So the cross is glorious and because of, of it demonstrates his love. We need a supernatural change in our hearts and minds or we can't see that. Otherwise, it seems foolish, yes. I don't, I don't know if this ties in exactly with that, but the thought that comes to my mind is, is God is saying to man, okay, give me your best shot. You know, and they crucified Christ on the cross because that's the worst thing that man could do to man. And He overcame it. He overcame it. He said, is that all you got? Yeah, first Corinthians one is a real good. It's supposed to be on man, you can say you give me your work, you know. Yeah, amen. I have a citation for William Lane again on this. The divine intention to lead human beings to the goal for which they had been created appeared to be mocked by human experience. It was entirely congruous with the primal intention celebrated Psalm eight that God should graciously decree that his son identify himself with the human condition and rescue humanity through his own humiliation and death. The sufferings of Jesus were appropriate, that's our word fitting, to the goal to be attained and were experienced in accordance with God's fixed purpose. So God intended to do it this way from all eternity, yes. I think though he suffered in a garden, he sweat blood and the mental anguish the only way I can put it in layman's terms is to imagine one woman being raped, and that's one man's sin on her, and she suffers all her life. Now imagine God suffered every every rape, every murder, but look at her intense suffering. Just one person from that rape and being uh, just desecrated and everything. But God suffered every human being that ever existed, every sin put on. Imagine the mental anguish. Sweating blood. Think of the mental. When you've got mental suffering, think of the mental anguish God went through to pay for those sins. It's just, to me, in some way, this is harder than the cross. Mm-hmm. It was fitting for him for whom all things and through all whom all, all things. Many were crucified. 
But they didn't die for the sins of the world. They never got up on that cross. They were dying for their own sins, like that thief. He said, I'm dying for my own sins. But they didn't die for the sins of the world. They never left the riches of heaven. They weren't God. They, many of them died and suffered crucifixion. But not the anguish, the mental, the spiritual. The anguish is beyond comprehension. That's the good gospel writers point that out to him. For whom are all things and through whom all are things is reminding us that <coughs> this humiliated son is also the creator from all eternity. And that he is ultimately um, the one who is to be worshipped for all eternity. And he's bringing sons to glory. Uh, one writer pointed out that that's an Exodus theme, that God brought his sons from Egypt through uh, the wilderness to Sinai where they beheld his glory. And now Jesus, in a sense, the new Moses, as a New Testament theme, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, we mentioned that this is a problem because how do you perfect he who is perfect from all eternity. Right? Well, as a matter of fact, the word per- perfect, teleos, the perfect, has a range of meanings. And if you wonder, if you look through the range of meanings, um, you find that one of the meanings is to obtain the highest goal. Okay? To obtain the highest goal. And so if the goal of Jesus Christ is to be the high priest and to bring sons to glory and to ever live to make intercession for them and to have with him perfected sons because of his work, then his suffering was the means of attaining that highest goal. Yeah. Comes that form of completion, completing. Yeah, completion in the sense of uh, attaining a goal through a means. So in other words, there isn't any imperfection in the nature of right. Christ that needed to... <laughs> right, it's not a removal of imperfection, but it's attaining a goal that, that there was a means to. Yeah. And so attaining the goal, which is bringing sons to glory, and... Also, his being consecrated as high priest. As a matter of fact, let me quote uh, Kistemacher, and I'll get to you, Peter. Not Kistemacher, Lane. He says this. The statement that Jesus was perfected through suffering draws on a special nuance of the verb teleon in the Septuagint. In ceremonial texts of the Pentateuch, the verb is used to signify the act of consecrating a priest to his office. And he gives a whole list of where that word was used for consecrating a priest to office. And so in a sense, it is, is, is through this suffering of death and shedding of blood that Jesus is set apart in the office of the high priest. Um, you know that, that one Greek word that's used for it is finished? Is that any connection with Yeah, that? it's a, it's a uh, telestai. Telestai is a red word. And, and it's... Um, it is finished, you know, um, once for all. So is that similar to perfected? That's a good, that's a good point. That's a good question. Same, same root word, yeah, teleos, yeah. Okay. Good point, Lonnie. 
That Greek study is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> He's working, you're working hard at it, don't you? Yeah, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I was just trying to encourage you. I know. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Get Telestai. Um, the, and so there may be this nuance here again that's giving us a little foretaste of where we're going with this priesthood thing. Because the, the author of Hebrews is writing to people who are very familiar with the Septuagint. And I think that's a pretty good point. Of consecrating a priest for a service. And that is uh, an interesting nuance of the word. Now the word author there has had many, many uh, articles written about what it means here because in the Greek the critics use this to point out that the Bible is just Greek, you know, pulling on Greek mythology because the term used here was one that was used of the Greek gods who were like champions that came down and won battles. And so there's some concern about whether such a, why, why is such a word here being used of um, Jesus? But William Lane likes the translation champion meaning that he did win the battle and he is leading us to glory. And if there happen to be Greek stories about Zeus that are similar, that doesn't detract from the fact that this is reality. Well, just because I think one of the problems, we always deal with this in, in theology, is usage really determines meaning. So I think usage in the midst of that, the Greek culture there, that obviously that term had to, you know, have some general use. Yeah. But when you say Wednesday, we're not... You know, or Thursday, we're not really talking about four, you know. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, I think that you could also say that in, in, in as much as that term meant the God coming down and acting among men in mythology, Jesus, he's claiming here, was the God coming down and acting among men as man to save man, but would even be consistent with that Zeus only this is a true one. Yeah, you know, these courses of comparative religion that the young people get in college that are designed to take their faith away from them. And I've, when I was teaching the high school class, I made sure that we uh, they were well prepared to withstand those classes when they got there. But they'll they'll do things like that. They'll say, oh, you think your Christianity is unique. Well, did you know that the mother and son theme is found in all these religions? And so they talk about... Uh, Isis and Osiris and you know uh, and the idea that a god comes to life when they'll talk about mystery religions, mystery religions and they'll, they'll say see there's no difference and then they'll try to say that Genesis came from the Gilgamesh epic and, and so on and so forth but they're just hoping that those young people who are being duped haven't actually read all of this stuff if you read this material from the pagans and read the Bible, it's very clear that it's not, it's not the same at all. And the difference is that Jesus did this in front of eyewitnesses. There's no proof that there ever was a Zeus. I mean, there's a huge difference here. And so, make sure the young people are well trained because the, those courses in comparative religions are a trap. Yes. Even given there was, you wouldn't be a certain, even if there was, you wouldn't be a certain person you'd be looking for for salvation anyways. Zeus? No. Yeah, the, the pagan gods are immoral. <laughs> in fact, a lot of the pagan gods behave worse than most humans, even in their mythology. 
uh, and in the end of their whole spiel of what they thought was their God, the gods were eventually going to get defeated and thrown into hell, or thrown into somewhere very bad. Or somebody else, one of the other gods, would defeat them. They killed each other. So they couldn't help themselves, yes. Do you think there was a correlation between uh, the time of the end of the age of innocence, which would be considered the age of 12 amongst the Jews, what Jesus, Jesus was perfect and sinless, and yet he had to have correction, admonition. He had to suffer the things of men, and that consequently, the death of the prophets. Well, in, you know, in his humanity, Jesus learned and grown grew, even though he's sinless. Talks about that a little bit in Luke. It's just kind of a mystery in some ways. I mean, what was Jesus like when he was four years old? Did he have all the knowledge of the universe? Uh, or is he just like any other? We don't know these things and since the Bible chooses not to tell us. Yeah, there, that's the early church. I mean, this is such a huge... How did the two natures relate? Three hundred years they debated it. Yeah, they, I mean, they, there's all sorts of different positions. Uh, you know, historians and all these. Uh, there's just a bunch of different positions that you can win a lot. Of, uh, six or seven big ones. Yeah, we had to memorize them for yeah, the test. Yeah, memorize them for your history. But I, I, you know, I think that the, the basic orthodox position that most people, you know, come down to is Jesus is 100% human, 100% divine, mm-hmm. and exactly how the two natures interacted is a mystery. And to try to nail them down, you're dealing with an eternal, infinite nature. It's just, you can't, you can't, you can't do it. i got a choice for the class right now. i got 15 minutes of MacArthur, or 15 minutes of me. I wasn't expecting, I wasn't expecting any votes. Um, this actually is about the next verse we're going to study, and I, I, I want to play this to introduce the next verse, just to give you a, an example of the glory and splendor of what's coming here in Hebrews. You know, MacArthur just nails this thing in a way that when I heard this, I almost had to pull my truck over and stop and just sit there and say, oh, Lord, when I, when the first time I heard this. John MacArthur preaching on... And we either are ashamed of Jesus or ashamed of ourselves, one or the other. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I want to focus on the term ashamed. When we speak of the worst kind of human character, the worst kind of human conduct, we often say that someone is shameless, that they behave as one who knows no shame. There certainly are many people who have no shame when it comes to their own conduct, their own behavior, and they run quite a broad spectrum, frankly. There are shameless people who are very evil, very immoral, very profligate. They live the most wicked kind of lives, apparently having their consciences seared so that they feel no guilt and no remorse, no matter how many of God's laws they break or how frequently they break them. 
These are shameless people. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's another kind of shameless person. Not an overtly wretched and wicked and evil person, but a covertly wicked person who on the surface is religious and self-righteous. Convinced in their own minds, these people believe that they are, by their own human goodness, acceptable to God. That they don't break God's laws, and so they are shameless also. They feel no guilt and no remorse because of their success at deceiving themselves about their true condition. There are then wretched people who know no shame, and there are religious people who know no shame. There are those openly wicked people who feel no guilt because they've trained their, themselves to deny it, and there are those religious people, covertly wicked, who feel no guilt because they've trained themselves to trust in their own self-righteousness as in all places and all times, Israel was filled with those kinds of shameless people. There were the reprobates, there were the prostitutes, there were the petty criminals, there was the flotsam and jetsam of human society, there was the riffraff, the tax collectors, the openly, outwardly wretched people who lived shameless lives. Worse in many ways and harder to reach were the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, and those who shaped the religious establishment, who also were shameless because they believed that they held no guilt before God, that they by their own self-righteousness had erased their culpability. In both cases, these people are proud of things they should be ashamed of. Outwardly wretched people should be ashamed of their wretchedness. Hypocrites should be ashamed of their hypocrisy. Paul in Philippians 3.19 describes people who are proud about what they should be ashamed of. Whether unbridled immorality or bridled hypocrisy. Sinners are very good at self-deception. Very good at feeling good about themselves. And that's particularly true in our day. When our society works very hard on convincing people that they should feel good about whatever it is that they choose to be and do because, after all, they have autonomy and a right to choose whatever they want. Sinners will train themselves not to feel shame. In the sixth chapter of Jeremiah, there is a good insight into this, and it describes the sinner in inescapably clear language. Listen to this. Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. They didn't even know they were disgraceful. They didn't even know they were shaming themselves. They trained themselves not to feel 
all sinners, whether they are religious or irreligious, whether they are moral or immoral, have plenty to be ashamed of. Plenty. And the Bible makes much of this. The words associated with shame are all through the scripture. Shame, ashamed, shameful, shameless. They appear in scripture connected with sin. Whether it's the hypocritical sin of self-righteousness or whether it's the sin of open immorality or anything in between, it's a cause for shame, guilt, embarrassment, disgrace, or even that old word mortification. My mother used to use that. I remember her saying to me as a kid, you ought to be mortified to do that. I'm mortified that you would say that. And that was the severest way for her to express upon me shame. I'm glad I was raised by parents who said to me quite often, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. It served me much better than having parents say to me, you ought to be proud of yourself or feel good about yourself. Because we have plenty to be ashamed of. We should teach our children to be ashamed of themselves. Not just before people, but more importantly before God. That will serve them well in leading them to repentance. In reality, to just make it really simple this morning in the brief time that we have, salvation comes down to the issue of shame. It comes down to the issue of shame. To those who are ashamed of themselves, there is hope of salvation. To those who are not, there is no hope. That's what it comes down to. There is grace and there is forgiveness and there is eternal life for people who are ashamed of themselves. There is no grace and no forgiveness and no eternal life for those who are not. And that's the choice. In fact, Jesus made the choice clear when he said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. You see, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's going to have to deal with sinners. And the only attitude that a holy God can have toward unforgiven sin is to treat the sinner with consummate, permanent shame. For those people who will not be ashamed of themselves... Christ will be ashamed of them. There are people, obviously, who refuse to be ashamed of themselves, and so they are ashamed of Jesus and his message. They're ashamed of the gospel. They are ashamed to call Jesus Lord and Messiah. That would be a disgrace to them. That would be an admission of their wretchedness, and they refuse to do that. That was characteristic of the religious establishment. Notice verse 22 of Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, then to be raised up on the third day. Jesus was not to be their Messiah. He was not to be their Lord, not to be their Savior. Jesus was not to be their King. They will not have this man to reign over them, they said. They were ashamed of Christ. 
Everything about Jesus was a stumbling block to them and an offense to them, not just the cross, everything else. They, they put him on a cross because they were ashamed of the fact that he claimed to be their Messiah. It offended them that one so humble, one so meek, would claim to be the Messiah. And it wasn't the lack of noble character that offended them. It wasn't divine power that offended them. That didn't offend them. What offended them was his message. What offended them was that he called them sinners, that he called their fasting hypocrisy, that he called their prayers hypocrisy, and he called their giving hypocrisy. And he said, in fact, they were the poor and the prisoners and the blind and the oppressed, that their true spiritual condition was one of absolute poverty. They were spiritually bankrupt. They were imprisoned to their own iniquity and headed for judgment. They were blind to spiritual truth. And they were literally burdened with the weight of guilt. And they would not received that message. In fact, when he preached that sermon in his own synagogue in his own town of Nazareth, the first time he ever came back to preach there, in the synagogue he was raised in, where he spent 30 years of his life, where everybody knew him, he preached that one sermon, and it was his neighbors and his friends and his extended family that after one sermon took him to a cliff and tried to throw him off and kill him. That's how much they hated his message. And the bottom line was, it called for them to be ashamed of themselves. They had so convinced their own minds of their righteousness, their self-righteousness, that his message infuriated them to the degree that they endeavored to execute him after one sermon. And that's really where it all eventually comes, this matter of who goes to heaven. It's whether or not you're ashamed of yourself or ashamed of Jesus and his gospel. That's the issue. And you have, by the way, plenty of things to be ashamed of. Plenty. You have a lifelong record of sin. Unmitigated. Unrestrained. And unmixed with anything that is truly righteous. Every sinner ought to be totally ashamed of himself or herself. But I'll tell you, there is someone you shouldn't be ashamed of, and that's Jesus. What is to be ashamed of? Perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect virtue, perfect goodness, perfect knowledge, wisdom, perfect compassion, perfect love, perfect mercy, perfect grace, perfect power, perfect justice. What is to be ashamed of? To say that you would be ashamed of Jesus is to indict your own wretchedness. It is to say, I am ashamed of what is holy. I am ashamed of what is right. I'm ashamed of what is good. I'm ashamed of what is honest and true and just. I'm ashamed of that. And that makes clear your condition. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I will boast only in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christians are people who are not ashamed of Jesus Christ, but they are ashamed of themselves. And they come to Him in shame to be forgiven. Should I be ashamed of the one who died on the cross to deliver me from sin? 
Should I be ashamed of the one who loved me with a perfect love from before the world began? Should I be ashamed of the one who chose to be my friend and my redeemer? Should I be ashamed of the one who has gone to heaven to prepare a place for me in the Father's house and to receive me to himself and allow me to dwell in his holy presence forever and ever? What is to be ashamed of? In Hebrews chapter 2, there is a very, very compelling statement in verse 11. It's a brief one, but it's frankly a riveting statement. It says of Jesus, speaking of believers, He, verse 11, Hebrews 2, is not ashamed to call them brothers. He is not ashamed, ashamed to call them brothers. He is the author of our salvation, verse 10 says. He is bringing many sons to glory. Through his suffering, he purchased our salvation. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Sometimes you hear people say, Well, he's my brother, but I don't want anybody to know it. I'm ashamed of him. I'm ashamed to be associated with such a person. Well, I would have to say, that the Lord Himself, the perfect, sinless Christ, has plenty to be ashamed of about me. It's an amazing act of grace that the Lord would say, I'm not ashamed to call John Carter my brother. I'm not ashamed to call him mine. But I wonder how embarrassing it should be for him to call me his. But he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Well, that's, that's just a little clip out of about 40 minutes. But I, I just was riveted by the contrast of, of the Holy Jesus calling us, not ashamed to call us his brothers. And it just really highlights the, you know, the effectiveness of the grace of God that washes away our sins, that we can actually be his brothers. He wouldn't be ashamed of us. Anyhow, a little preaching from MacArthur and... Uh,